0: And welcome to the programme. You can visit our website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Another very busy programme lined up ahead of us here tonight on RT Radio 1, and I'm in good company. What a... Panel, we have for you this evening, starting with our own Aina Nilana, who for most of last year was living in County Clare, but now she's back at her home in Terran. You're in Dublin Six West. And I'm wondering, Aina, have you noticed anything different since you've moved home?
1: Well, hello, Derek. How are you doing? Yes, I am indeed. And the big sign I'm noticing now that I'm back in Dublin is that we have 20 minutes difference in when the light comes and goes. Yes. And now in the evening time, the light doesn't go in Dublin until five o'clock and that's a grand long stretch and once the daylight begins to increase well then everything else happens accordingly plants begin to grow and our spirits all rise as well
0: I saw a bumblebee out on New Year's Eve and I noticed a daisy growing the other day
1: what's going on Nothing, that happens every year. You're getting as bad as everyone else. Someone sees one daisy and this is a sign of the apocalypse. It is. It's not. (laughs) Every year, every year there's always the first daffodil or the first primrose or the first something.
0: Well I got the
2: first thing. it doesn't A-Z, mean the world the is coming to to
1: hell in a handcart it doesn't it doesn't
0: <laughs> Would you agree with that Richards?
2: <laughs> I, I would yes um, I think the signs of spring here for instance are song thrushes singing they were never that thick on the ground but they're very thick on the ground at the moment for some reason they've totally mistaken things it's way ahead of their normal breeding season but They're song thrushes and they do what song thrushes do.
0: And they are singing. Now, it's important to point out, it is not yet spring uh, by the calendar definition, is it, Niall?
3: No, that's absolutely right. I think we always have discussion on the programme every year exactly when does spring start, when does it not start. It certainly doesn't start in the middle of January so we can we can categorically say that it's still the winter. Uh, but Richard's right, we are hearing more birds singing. I know Derek, you actually sent me a recording of a bird that you recorded recently singing and it was a song thrush. It sort of sounded to me like it was practising its song. That's what you often hear at this time of year, particularly the young birds trying to get into the swing of it, trying to make sure that they can hone their skills in advance of the breeding season. So we're hearing uh, Robin singing, song thrush is starting to sing as well and the other day I actually heard a pied wagtail singing as well which I hadn't heard for many months so maybe maybe spring is in the air but it's certainly not fully here well, yet. Well it's
0: not the best recording I've ever made of any bird singing, I made it on my mobile phone in Herbert Park, I think it was last Wednesday e before 6 o'clock I was nearly going to say evening six is, uh, after 6 is evening, isn't that correct so late afternoon, it was around half past 5 or thereabouts and sure enough there it was singing in the trees so have a listen to it, it is a song thrush I wasn't 100% sure what it was which is why I sent It to Nile. So here it is. Now, as I said, not the best recording, but you can definitely hear it there singing. So, should that song Thrush not be singing, Richard Nile?
2: Well, I remember the old name for the mistle thrush. It was the stormcock. So he was storm. He used to sing into the teeth of storms, and he was always an early singer. Now they are around here. The the thrushes. They are quite plentiful, but oddly, it is their smaller cousin, the song thrush, that has moved into first place this year for some reason.
3: Their ways are not our ways. That's right, Richard. Yes, it, uh, it can be hard to predict what exactly triggers this. We had, uh, uh, certainly in the run-up to the new year, quite a mild winter to that point and that can also lull the birds, I suppose, into a false sense of security or make them think perhaps that the, the seasons are changing faster than they are. And then, of course, once the hormones are flowing that, that triggers the song in the birds, they can't really consciously switch that off. That's something that they do. But for birds like song thrushes and robins, robins, of course, keep a territory all year round so they would be singing at this time of year regardless. Uh, it does seem to be an important part of the practice that they do in advance of the breeding season proper.
0: It's a lovely song, I must say, even if it is a little bit early. So keep your ears open for early singers and if you record them, feel free to send them in. Mooney at rte.ie The same email address for your wildlife photographs but do not interfere in any manner, shape or form with a wild creature if you're trying to get a recording or a photograph. OK, you got that? All right, let's move on and start the programme. Now we're going to talk about pygmy shrews. The pygmy shrew is Ireland's smallest mammal. I'm sure you know that. It has been present here for thousands of years and was our only species of shrew until relatively recently. Then, in 2007, the greater white-toothed shrew was discovered in County Tipperary in Barnall and Kestrel Pellets. The invasive species is up to three times larger than the native pygmy shrew and is spreading at a rapid rate of around five kilometres per year, we're told. Modelling has estimated that it may cover the entire island by 2050. It's an invasive species, remember. Its presence is not always welcome, as experienced by Alison Comiskey, who contacted the programme to tell us about a problem her mum was having in her living room. Here's Alison.
4: Hi Derek and team at Mooney Goes Wild. My name is Alison and I contacted you on behalf of my mum who lives in County Westmeath on a farm. Um, I currently live in London but I'm doing this on my mum's behalf. Recently we acquired a problem which we thought initially was mice in our sitting room. So we live in a 1950s bungalow in County Westmeath. The farm outbuildings are about 20 yards from the house. And the area is mostly to the sitting room, which in typical Irish houses is an unused, the good sitting room. This problem is going on probably for about six months now. And initially we contacted pest control because we thought it was mice. When they came out, they said that it wasn't mice. Indeed, it was shrews, which we were completely fumbled by. Um, We researched this further because there was a terrible smell in the sitting room and in the hallway. So when you walked up into the hallway into the sitting room, there's a terrible pungent smell. They say it's kind of like the skunk in America, which I've never had experience of. Not a great situation. And we're hoping that maybe you can have some results for us today on how to take this forward because pest control did say that the shrew is an endangered species, so wouldn't touch, wouldn't put any poison or anything down. So we're left with these shrews in the house and we'd like to get some advice. It would be wonderful. Thank
0: you. Oh, I wouldn't fancy that. Whatever about having rodents around the house. I don't like them. And this is not a rodent, by the way. It is a shrew. But imagine having something that looks like a mouse... That smells to high heaven. Oh, oh, God. Anyway, let's see how we can help this lady. There's only one man for the job, as they say. His name is Dr. Alan McDevitt. He's based at the University of Salford in Manchester, but he knows his way around Ireland, as you're just about to hear. Hello, Alan. Tell us more, if you would, please.
5: Yes, that's correct. Derek, I uh, have been working on shrews in Ireland since 2003 around, uh, probably one of the very few people. Um, I did my PhD in University College Dublin on the pygmy shrews back then and how they reached Ireland. And then after... Travelling around Europe and North America, working on other species, I came back again in uh, 2012 to work on the newly invasive and discovered greater white to the shrew in Ireland. And we were working on both their spread and the impacts that they were having on native fauna.
0: So you know all about shrews, it's fair to say. For the benefit of the listeners who've never seen a shrew, can you describe one, please?
5: Well, yes, we had. Uh, Initially, we were known for having one shrew in Ireland, that is the pygmy shrew. And the pygmy shrew is actually one of the world's smallest mammals. It can weigh about three grams, tiny little thing, often mistaken uh, for mice, but they're very much a different group completely. They are uh, little insectivores, more closely related to hedgehogs. And then in 2007, we had then another shrew which arrived, which is the greater white-toothed shrew, which is about three times the size of a pygmy shrew, can weigh as much as 20 grams, even uh, pregnant females. Uh, So that's the two types that we currently have on the island. Are they hairy? They are hairy, yes. The pygmy shrew would be, you know, a little bit finer in its hair, but also has a hairy tail, a thicker and hairy tail, whereas in the greater uh, white to the shrew is also hairy as well, a little bit more greyish brown than the pygmy shrew and has a slightly shorter tail relative to its body size, which has less hairs on it.
0: Now, Alison is aware they're an endangered species. Is she correct in saying that, number one? And is it a problem? What can you do to advise her mum? And the smell is awful, she says. Why are they so smelly?
5: Yes. So the the thing about describing them as endangered, it is actually the native pygmy shrew, which is a, a protected species in Ireland. It's, it's not technically endangered, but it is a protected species. However, based on what uh, Alison has described, it's very clear that she's talking about the newly invasive greater white-toothed shrew, which is an invasive species. And also it's... Smell is from the glands which the males have on their sides during the breeding season and I can also attest that it is a particularly pungent and nasty smell. That's correct. What does it smell like? I could imagine describing it as uh, lots of rain-soaked coats being left uh, in a in a room for (laughs) for weeks on end and then you coming back in to that smell so kind of a a smell of that and urine mixed in would be probably the best way to describe it or worst way to describe it maybe
0: (laughs) it sounds awful but one tiny little mammal can smell bad enough to upset an entire household is that really possible
5: Yes. Well, well, the thing about um, what is one of the unique features of the greater white to the true amongst shrews is that normally our native pygmy shrew is more of a solitary animal or species, whereas in the invas- invasive greater white to the true, they tend to live in social groups and in nests where there's many individuals together. So it's likely that it's not just the smell coming from one individual, but a group of them, which obviously then amplifies the nastiness of it.
1: It's great to talk to you about the white-toothed shrew because it's called the white-toothed shrew because its teeth have white tips, whereas the pygmy shrew actually has red-tipped teeth. And this was how it was discovered in the first instance when they were looking at the pellets from the kestrels and the barn owls in in Tipperary. They, They looked at the remains in these pellets, the the birdwatch people did, they teased them out and they found the teeth which obviously survive in the indigestible parts and the teeth had white tips so they couldn't be the usual red tipped pygmy shrew teeth and then they set out the traps to see what they could catch the the mammal traps, the small little ones and lo and behold they found these white toothed shrews. Now they don't even occur in Britain, they're not a British species at all, so they occur in mainland Europe and and patently, it came over with the Celtic tiger. Somebody imported a large tree with roots on it and big root ball. And inside in that root ball was a pregnant white-toothed shrew that came all the way from the continent and was introduced in this way, much like I suppose the bank foal had been introduced way back in the 1920s to Crusha, these kind of things that happen with small mammals. But the trouble with this white-toothed shrew is that like the grey squirrel and the red squirrel the white-toothed shrew is larger, much larger as you say and it's out-competing our native pygmy shrew which came 8,000 years ago with the Mesolithic people from Andorra or someplace and had become part very much of the biodiversity of Ireland. So this then began to spread, as you have said, from this initial introduction of one pregnant female and it's spreading and you can see the concentric circles and patently it has got up as far as County West needs now. It's not in Northern Ireland, it's not in Waterford, it hasn't spread over completely yet. But where it has been spreading, it has been out-competing the native pygmy shrew because it's eating the food that the pygmy shrew would normally eat. Now, the pygmy shrew is part of the diet of uh, birds of prey. This is why they were looking in the, in the, in the actual um, pellets of these birds of prey to see what they could find. But the white-toothed shrew doesn't seem to be fulfilling the same role and it must be maybe because of these horrible smells that you're speaking of. Do birds of prey, I wonder... Not be delighted with this extra source of food, you would think, because we're smaller in Ireland with numbers of of small mammals than other parts of the world and our birds of prey are less as a consequence. So I just wonder, why don't they eat the white-toothed shrew? Or is this true? Do they eat the white-toothed shrew?
5: Well, there is uh, currently uh, research going on, still spearheaded by uh, John Lusby in Birdwatch, uh, Ireland as well. Um, We know that they do eat greater white to the trues where they are, but there is some hypothesis put forward perhaps that they are less nutritious than eating a, for want of a better word, a juicy bank vole, for instance. Um, So we're not exactly sure how much they are being preyed upon at the moment, but we have known from some dietary studies from Uh, pine martens and such that at least some of them do appear to be eaten but that remains much to be seen at the minute of how much now they are going to form part of the diet where they have a stronghold in areas such as Tipperary and the Midlands.
1: We know from um, people who have cats that the cats will catch the pygmy shrew in the garden. That's how oftentimes people become aware of them. Bring them in as offerings or gifts because cats do the like of that but they don't eat them because even in the pygmy shrew these glands are too nasty for the the cat to actually feed upon it. So if the ones in the white toothed shrew are much more nauseous that we can all smell them, surely that would affect the taste of them as well. Kind of a defence mechanism if you like. But Coming into houses is something is something different because we normally only associate house mice and perhaps field mice as well with coming into houses. And yet this person tells us, Alison tells us that her house is overrun with them and they smell horrible. So how would you recommend trapping them? I mean, we know about the mouse traps. We know that putting cheese on them is only a Walt Disney conceit and you're much better putting peanut butter on your mouse traps. But, but for white-toothed shrews, they're insectivores. They're not going to be attracted to peanut butter. So given that they're not protected, that we can get rid of them and we're meant to kill them, we can't live trap them and put them back. They're an invasive species. If you catch them, you've got to kill them. How do you catch them? Have you any recommendations
5: Yes. So what we would recommend doing is that they can still very much be trapped in mouse traps, for instance, is that we often find with uh, mammals in general, small mammals, that they're inquisitive enough that if there is something newly there, they will normally investigate an object in any case. So it does not necessarily overly matter if there is not available bait, because as you rightly point out, you know, these are insectivorous mammals. They're not necessarily going to be encouraged uh, by peanut butter or the like, but if there are still traps set down, kill traps, snap traps, uh, they can still be used even if there is not bait. But in some cases, if uh, you want to put bait on them, sometimes little bits of mince or dog food can be used to potentially help with this. But... Because, as you say, it's very important that they essentially are an invasive species which are not protected and cannot be live trapped and released. It also means that you could get the help of the likes of pest control companies and things like this to help out if you you had a large number of them in the house, for example, because they're very much a species unlike our pygmy shrew, which will come into houses. That's even why in the likes of France, they're often informally referred to as the house shrew for example because they will exhibit this type of behaviour are not as perturbed by humans as our native pygmy shrew would be for example
0: but what's the problem with live and let live alan why do we have to get rid of them can we not just accept that they're here now and that's it
5: well, they most certainly are here. That's certainly true. And uh, there's, this is not a species now. It's very much become established. Um, and it's not something which we are going to be able to eradicate. But in much the same way that if you have a mouse infestation in your house, you would uh, try to get rid of that. And as I say, you have the extra problem here of I can completely sympathize uh, with the listener in that. The smell is something which you're not going to experience with a house mouse or anything. It is particularly pungent and nasty, the smell of them. So if you have quite a few of them in your house, that smell is going to become unbearable. So it should be the case that if you have a large infestation in your house, that they, uh, it, is, it is best to try and get rid of the problem I would recommend.
0: And I'm kind of surprised that you, Annie. you're normally complaining when people say, How do I get rid of this? How do I get rid of that? How do I get rid of the other? Now you're telling people how to do it!
1: I'm telling people how to do it Derek because I don't encourage people to have things in their houses that can do them harm. This um, white toothed shrew the urine of it can contain wilds disease and any more than I'd be encouraging people to have brown rats in their houses and saying the poor rat we should let it live. There comes a time when something that's going to be a danger to our health must be eradicated and particularly this one doesn't even come with a passport so there's, there's, I have no sympathy for the white tooth at all. I can hear nothing good about it. We don't even know if it's going to feed the barn owls. It's awful smelly. It's pushing out the pygmy shrew. It might carry diseases in its urine. I don't hear anything good about it at all. It's a baddie, Derek. There are baddies in the world, you know. Oh, I know indeed.
0: Richard, would you live with it? Would you be quite happy to have the white-toothed shrew in your living room? Well, I'd be very
2: interested to see a white-toothed shrew. The cat, I must admit, occasionally brings in a dead pygmy shrew. One thing I'd like to ask Alan when it comes to shrews it seems to me they're very interesting not just for what they do but for what they don't do. If you look at something like a mouse our job as a creature on earth is to spread our genes and ensure the survival of those genes into perpetuity. Now if you take something like a mouse a bigger, slightly, but it produces ten litres a year of anything up to eight young. A huge, huge uh, thing. Now the shrews produce rather less. Now not only that, something as small as a shrew, if it had any sense, would surely hibernate. What is the point of staying up all day in winter? Surely something as small as that should shrink away and sleep it out until the autumn. And its relative, the hedgehog, much bigger, finds it much harder. It does it. Why do shrews not do this, Alan?
5: Yes, and shrews in general are fascinating creatures in this way and that they are active all year round. The, our native pygmy shoe, for example, though they do experience significant declines in their population where we have maybe 80 to 90% of the young will not survive uh, over the winter season. However, they do show an absolutely remarkable adaptation in that they will shrink their skulls, their brains, their organs in order to survive the winter because they... As we might know, they need to eat and eat and eat. They have a very high metabolic rate in general, needing to eat up to one and a quarter times their weight in food each day. Um, So they certainly do not hibernate, but they have these adaptations which allow them to survive the winter period by physiologically and morphologically changing in a remarkable way. And they've even been shown then to be able to slightly regrow these after the winter period, not to the size before, but still to getting back to a significant proportion. There's been fascinating research published on that in the last couple of years. The greater white to the true, for instance, is slightly different in that it doesn't have as as fast of a metabolic rate, but they do undergo what we call incidence of torpor, where it's not like a hibernation, but is more of a short-term state where they slow down their metabolic rate which is one of the reasons why we think they were able to survive a journey from the continent as well This one pregnant female or a couple of individuals. So shrews in general although they don't hibernate show some fascinating adaptations towards surviving
3: periods of time where resources are low or temperatures are low in general. Alan, you mentioned earlier that the pygmy shrew in Ireland, although it's protected by law, it's not currently classed as an endangered species. But as the greater white-toothed shrew continues to spread, and I believe it's, it's predicted that it may actually occupy the whole island of Ireland by 2050, do you think that the status of the pygmy shrew will change? And could we even lose it as an Irish species?
5: Yes, and it's that's something we're extremely worried about at the minute because... We've been researching this topic for the last few years, and even when we first kind of noticed that the pygmy shrew appeared to be absent, us and colleagues in Queen's University in Belfast, that they seemed to be absent at sites where the greater white to the shrew is present, we we weren't 100% sure if it was a a widespread pattern, but it certainly seems the case. We, We know for certain now that it is gone, the pygmy shrew, within the core area. And we've also found as well that it can disappear in as little as a year after it comes into contact with the invasive greater white to the true so it could be a worrying pattern because we're still seeing this being replicated in the ongoing work that we're doing we have a feeling that it might be related to dietary competition, that the, the Greater White to the Giroux essentially just outcompetes the Pygmy Shrew because the Pygmy Shrew has been completely free of competitors for thousands of years in Ireland. What we see with the Pygmy Shrew in the continent is that it will occupy a slightly different prey niche when it's in communities with other shrews but in Ireland it's been on its own so the fact now that a new competitor has come in it simply does not have time to adapt to it and the worrying sign is is based on how rapidly the greater white to the true is spreading and we have exactly estimated that we think it could be across the whole island uh, in the next 30 to 40 years based on its current rate of spread um, it's particularly worrying for the pygmy shrew because eradication is not feasible. And how to do something about this when it's in the undergrowth out of sight is something which is almost going to be impossible to deal with. We've even proposed that our island or offshore island populations of pygmies are going to become even more important. I am making sure that we don't have any transfer of the greater white to the true over to those islands. There is some doubt about, you know, whether maybe other types of habitat in the West, you know, more peatland type habitats, which pygmy shrews seem to do particularly well in, in the UK as well, versus the common shrew. Will the greater white shrew be able to outcompete it in habitats, which it's a little bit more specialised in? But it is worrying. As you say, they're, they're still classified as essentially least concern in Ireland now, you know, that... What's happening looks like the future for them is worrying at the minute and we're going to keep looking into if there is going to be any outposts for pygmy shrews potentially uh, being able to survive in the face of this very rapid invasion.
0: Well, Alan, lovely to speak with you. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk with us today and we'll talk to you again soon, Alan. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye. Thank you. Now here's an interesting story for you. You all know what a drone is, don't you? It's an unmanned aircraft. No human pilot on board, no passengers. Well, we're seeing more and more of them. Everybody seems to have them nowadays. And it's only a matter of time before we see them in the skies delivering our parcels. If you happen to live in Asia or parts of Africa or Australia, it's fairly commonplace to have. Deliveries made by drone there. In fact, they're leading the way in drone deliveries, and the future is looking bright, what with COVID and all that kind of stuff, because it's contactless. You order online, and the drone comes out and drops off your parcel, and you don't have to say hello or goodbye to anybody, or shake their hands, or smell their breath, or whatever the case may be. Anyway, it's big business. But it's not without its problems. One Australian drone company had to ground its drones for a short period because they were being attacked by ravens. You heard me correctly. Let me read on. A drone delivery company is resuming service delivering beverages and fast food in Australia after it was grounded following attacks on the small aircraft by local wildlife. Ravens had been swooping on and pecking the drones as they carried coffee and sushi to customers in the Canberra suburb of Harrison. Local ornithologist Neil Hermes was commissioned to advise the drone operator Wing, a subsidiary of Google, and he joins us on the line now from Canberra. Hello, Neil. How are
6: you today? Enjoying your summer, I take it? Oh, Derek, I'm, I'm fabulous and hello to you and the whole panel. Uh, it's great to be able to speak to you from Canberra, the capital of Australia, and of course we're in the middle of our summer and we're having wonderful birding uh, weather here at the moment and I've been out during the day today having a fabulous time um, uh, down along our coastal strip near Canberra. It's been great. Now, take
0: me back to last September when there was a clash between the local wildlife, i.e. the ravens that were nesting, and drones operated by a delivery company called Wing.
6: That's right, Derek. And um, we have two species of ravens and crows in Canberra. Uh, We have a slightly larger one called the Australian raven, which is about the size of your hooded crow. And they're very bright and they're very defensive and... Uh, We have deliveries uh, to homes with a drone company. Wing uh, Drone delivers uh, various products to people's homes. It's an experimental program that started in Canberra a number of years ago. And we had an incident in September where some ravens were reportedly flying near and and potentially even attacking uh, drones that were delivering product uh, near what turned out to be their nest tree. So I went out and had a look. Um, I was engaged by the company that runs the drones, uh, the drone delivery service called Wing. Um, And I went out and it took me very little time to realise that in fact the house where most of the issues were, um, there was a a large tree in a park nearby, uh, a very large uh, typical Australian raven nest at the top of the tree. And I could see three small chicks' heads poking up, being fed when the parents were coming in and out. Uh, And certainly when the drones came nearby, the parents didn't like that. And they used to, they, they were making strong alarm calls and on a couple of occasions they flew at the drone and whilst I didn't see it, uh, on a social media post, uh, there was a, a shot taken of one of these uh, ravens grabbing the back of the drone and giving it a shake as it was coming in to do a delivery. The bird was completely unharmed. The delivery proceeded and the drone was unharmed. But the company was concerned enough uh, about what was happening to get me to have a look and to make recommendations about what was happening and what we should do. Uh, that, what, what they were doing, uh, Derek and panel, is that they were attacking the, the drones as though they were a, an eagle approaching the area. This is classic uh, raven behaviour. Uh, they'd fly up, they'd call it the uh, intruder, they'd fly at the intruder, they would come from behind and try and grab it by the, if, if it was an eagle, try and grab it by the tail and essentially just try and drive it away from their nest. And that's the behaviour that they were showing towards this drone. You must understand these are specifically for deliveries, these drones, and they're about a metre across. They're quite large. And they fly in a particular direction, they have a tail at one end. and the the ravens understood that, and they grabbed it by the tail end uh, and gave it a shake in the air. and they were just doing what ravens would do to keep a large predatory bird away from their chicks. Um, so having noticed that, I then reported back to the uh, to the company and said that whilst these birds had chicks in their in their nest, they were likely to continue this sort of a behaviour. And the company uh, immediately closed down operations for an area of about 300 metre radius around that nest site for the duration of the nesting. Uh, And I was able to report back at the end of November that the birds were clear of the nest and uh, deliveries resumed. And the ravens, whilst they were still in the area, they just uh, made the odd uh, alarm call at the drones when they saw them, but they showed no more interest.
2: Neil, you mention a tail on the drone. I'm not terribly familiar with drones. I've seen them, but I've never operated one now. It brings back a memory. It used to be said here that birds responded to helicopters. They panicked when helicopters came over. I notice they don't do it anymore, but that's beside the point. But the tail extending back to the rear rotor in a helicopter vaguely resembles the tail of a a falcon so that might be one of the things that trigger it but the other thing is hovering now i wonder if in fact the drone resembles a falcon do you think in that it might hover It has to hover i suppose to drop the the load that it's delivering Uh, does the profile matter
6: Look, we, we're not sure about the profile particularly. These are drones that are about a metre in size. They have a fuselage on them that looks a little like a, an, an aircraft with wings and a sort of pointy end at one end and a tail at the other. They're slightly, slightly different from the drone that perhaps people might be used to Um, uh, recreational purposes, which essentially are round shape. They don't have a front or a back. These ones certainly do have a back. And you mentioned hovering. Yes, the drone has to hover to be able to do the delivery. So they'll travel in from the delivery um, uh, depot uh, and then they'll come over a house and then they will descend uh, to around about uh, 40 metres or thereabouts over the the delivery point point. And then they will drop a wire down, which then drops the, uh, the, the food or the hardware items or the pharmacy items, whatever they might be, uh, onto the delivery point. So they're hovering for a, a little while. And, of course, whilst they're in full flight mode, the, the ravens aren't, aren't chasing them through the air. They're travelling faster than what a, 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 a wedgetail eagle might. But when they're in hover mode, of course, they're very accessible to the birds and they can, they can approach them quite closely. And, and that's when the interactions occurred. Uh, in September, um, that uh, that alerted us to the fact that the birds were onto the drones around the nest site. So, look, I think there might be a certain amount of recognition of the of the of the shape as being something that's of th- of a threat, um, but whether the colour, the shape, the wing is particular, I'm not sure. I think it's just seen as a as a general threat um, uh, when it's so close to a nest.
2: How much does it matter, after all? The drone isn't harmed, presumably, and the raven isn't harmed, and interactions with predators are normal to ravens defending their young. Does it really matter if you deliver in the presence of... It's only a few minutes, the load is dropped, and the drone goes away, and presumably, after a while, ravens will accept drones. So are you overreacting? Is the company overreacting?
6: Look, I think the the, the company uh, uh, reacted in a way which is probably, you know, conservative, and that was that they were concerned that they didn't understand what was happening and they needed to understand the process better. Uh, one of the things you, you do need to understand is it wasn't just one delivery point near the nest. There was other... Other customers who were also getting delivery. So then, it it might well then have been a question of how often the, the drones travelled into and into and out of the area that the birds were defending. Um, so uh, it wasn't just the one delivery point that was co- that was potentially causing the issue. So I think it was wise for the company to to suspend operations whilst we under tried to understand better what would happen. And in fact, what happened was that the ravens successfully raised their chicks. Once the chicks got to a point where they were, they had fledged and they'd fledged for about a couple of weeks because they tended to stay in the tree for a while after they fledged. But once they got to a point where they were sort of becoming more or less independent, the parent ravens weren't concerned about protecting them. And so the reaction then to the to the drones, as they then started redoing re-deliveries in the area, was interesting to watch to see whether the ravens were then going to uh, continue to um be concerned by them but they weren't so i think that's a good piece of learning from this season's operations for, uh, and those particular birds
3: Neil, I'm very interested in what you're saying about the delivery drones that are causing the problem. We we don't have delivery drones here in Ireland in any meaningful sense yet, but we have encountered some problems with photographic drones and incidents with birds. I actually came across a case where a peregrine falcon was was indeed killed by a drone, by those wearing rotor blades, when someone was trying to take a photograph too close to its nest. Uh, This caused disturbance. Obviously, the peregrine falcon, a bird that we have both here in Ireland and in Australia, uh, supreme predator, of course, can fly at speeds of of up to 300 kilometres an hour. Uh, It seems it it saw this drone as being a threat to its its nestlings, dove around to try and intercept it and actually had its wing severed by one of the blades. Uh, And obviously a bird like a peregrine falcon, unfortunately, is not going to survive an incident like that. We've also had cases where people have been trying to take photographs, particularly at seabird colonies where they fly the drone into maybe onto a seabird island that would normally be inaccessible. This has caused big panic among uh, birds such as our northern gannets, very similar to your Australasian gannets there in the southern hemisphere. And uh, this, of course, it might make for a spectacular video and photograph. But the birds are panicking. It leads them to deserting their nests. And this, of course, then means that other birds, other predators perhaps, like like corvids, which are obviously very smart and will take opportunities where they arise, would then come in and predate the eggs or the chicks while the parents are off the nest with this disturbance. Is that something that you've noticed in australia as well and is there much awareness of this problem among photographers and drone operators
6: look my experience is not with um, the sort of the photographers and the and the, and the uh, the other commercials space my my experience is only with the uh, with the drone operations but I have anecdotally seen reports of I mean our wedgetail eagle for example which is like your golden eagle is particularly aggressive towards uh, recreation drones in various places but one of the things about the um, the delivery drone process is that uh, before they start delivering in an area um, they get someone like me to actually Actually, do a complete analysis of the bird risks in in places. So um, the uh, the chances of uh, of uh, flying near well, for example, a, a peregrine's nest is something that I would take very seriously. Um, we don't have um, the situations in um, in in the sites that we're operating where peregrines are nesting in any suburban settings. Um, but if they were, um, that would be that would be a new thing, to, uh, a new risk to look at. Um, if that was the case, the uh, the place where they currently operate are all um, suburban areas where um, there aren't there aren't birds of prey that are that are nesting um, they're largely you know suburban and so by almost by definition we don't have you know uh, eagles and, and and falcon nests in those areas uh, commonly in Australia but if there were sites that were uh, identified a commercial operational uh, operator like wing would uh, would do what they've done with these uh, the, the ravens and uh, and in fact I think one of the good things about this raven experience Experience is it's given the commercial uh, drone delivery company and the, uh, and the regulators a, a, a good um, practice run, if you like, as to what would happen and how to manage uh, when we know that there is a potential risk in a particular place. So I think this experience with the ravens has been a, a good one in a way because, well, it was successful in the fact that the birds raised their chicks, the drone wasn't damaged, um, there was a, a suspension in deliveries from an area um but also the process of doing that the identification of the problem etc um, i think it's been a good test for how all this sort of this uh, th- th- this process could work in the future so i'm not uh, belittling the risks in terms of you know um, uh, peregrines uh, clearly they won't be doing drone deliveries over seabird colonies anywhere there'd be no there'd be no um, there'd be no prospect of that but that's one of the things that we're very that we're learning about is to work out which areas um, these drones should not fly over and there i already prescribe areas for this company that they shouldn't fly over and um, we're being very conservative about that. Uh, we may find that, you know, um, uh, birds like ravens will actually accommodate these, um, these things. And um, as I said, we had a 300 metre zone around this nest. It may be that that's not necessary. It may be only 100 metres is necessary for, for a raven nest. And, uh, and that's something we might learn in future seasons.
0: Well, it's a lesson for all of us, I think, all over the world. Neil, thank you very much indeed for updating us and enjoy your summer.
6: <laughs> uh, thanks very much, Derek, and thanks, uh, panel, for for the opportunity to have a chat with you all.
0: There was a time, you know, when drones were the things of science fiction and I suppose staying in that genre. We have known for a long time now that DNA analysis can help identify who has been at the scene of a crime through shed skin cells, hair follicles, traces of saliva, etc. But now scientists have discovered that DNA material also floats in the air. And they're using this to identify the presence of different animal species in an area. Researchers placed sensitive filters attached to vacuum pumps at locations at a zoo park in Cambridgeshire, in the UK, and at Copenhagen Zoo, and managed to detect a wide variety of zoo creatures as well as other animals. This groundbreaking technology may prove to be a valuable non invasive tool to track biodiversity. The Danish group was led by Associate Professor Christine Bowman from the University of Copenhagen. She's reported as saying, We did not think that vacuuming animal DNA from air would work. We were astonished when we saw the results. (laughs) I bet they were. Anyway, Christine joins us now from the University of Copenhagen. Hello, Christine. How are you today? (laughs) Hello. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Please tell us more about your research.
7: Well, when it comes to animals or vertebrates specifically, what we're doing with environmental DNA is normally that one of the approaches we would use could, for instance, be we would go out into a rainforest and act as human bait for blood feeding leeches so that we can collect them and then go back to the lab and then sequence the DNA in their gut contents. And then we would use that. To, uh, to reveal what animals were in this rainforest. Another thing we could do was to go out and take water samples. So fresh water where the animals have been in contact with by drinking, for instance, that could also le- have DNA traces in it that could then reveal what animals were in the rainforest. So what this air is now providing is that um, it looks like, well, air is surrounding everything. And it looks like by vacuuming animal DNA out of air, well, we can actually use that to monitor what animals are in what areas.
0: I don't want to sound stupid, but how do you actually collect a sample of air?
7: Well, so we didn't know that either. So we just got this idea. Well, we want to try and vacuum DNA out of air. And we have, I, have a, I lead an environmental DNA group here in Copenhagen, and we are, we're fairly good at this environmental DNA stuff with more traditional environmental DNA samples. But with the air thing, we were, like, we had the idea, we wanted to do this, but we actually had no idea. We were envisioning, is it maybe something, you know, like Ghostbusters, where you have a big vacuum on your back and you go out into the rainforest? <laughs> but what we ended up with was a little bit less sexy. So we ended up with what worked best for us was actually a computer fan. And so this is the thing that you would use to cool down a computer. And we then 3D printed the housing to it, and we attached a filter to that, so that air would be sucked in over the filter that would then trap the DNA. And we of course then wanted to develop something that weren't relying on a power, like an outlet, a power outlet, because you don't get a power outlet in the middle of the rainforest. So we wanted something that could go on an external power source, and we wanted something that were also relatively quiet, because for the testing out in the zoo, of course we didn't want to disturb the animals, but once we go into nature, we also don't want to disturb the animals.
0: But tell me how it actually worked.
7: Well, so we we developed this vacuumer and then we were ready. Okay, now let's go to the zoo to try it out. And then we thought, okay, so a zoo is perfect because at least here in Denmark, it will contain a lot of animals that will not be found anywhere else. So we knew that if we detected any of these or most of these animals, well, it would not be found in any other parts of Copenhagen. So we were sure about the animal numbers, we were sure what they were, and we were sure where they were placed. Um, But in the zoo, we also had the advantage that we could then go like sampling at what we can almost call it different levels. So the first thing we did, because we had no idea that this would work so well, so we went to a stable, and this was the Okapi and Diker stable. So two species living there, and they had access to go to an outdoor area, but a relatively confined, like semi-confined space with two species. So this was the first thing we tried, because this was relatively safe and somewhere we thought this is going to work. The next thing we tried was then the Rainforest House. So this is a much larger area, very humid and warm, and with different mammals and birds and amphibians and even a fish species in there. Um, And then the third place, of course, what we really wanted to work was outside. So we, we also set up an air sampling site in the part of the zoo where there was like, they call it like the savannah area. So I think about 35 different species had access to an outdoor area there. And then we set up sampling just to see what will happen once we then go out in the open air. Will we get anything?
2: Christine, the impression you give is that the air is not empty. It has all kinds of organic compounds floating about it, a whole big fog of them in a sense we can't see it but this device your vacuum cleaner will gather it all up into one place. Now, you're confronted then with nuclei of cells of an unknown origin. So you now have to break these down and you have a big dog's breakfast of DNA from all kinds of (laughs) sources. Is this the picture? You have to know the genomes of the candidate animals then and then put in markers to try and identify those. It's like a PCR test in a sense.
7: Yes. Yeah, so what we're what we're faced with, and this is something that's common for all environmental DNA analysis, is that we will have once we've gotten our environmental samples, whether it's soil or air, well then we once we've extracted the DNA, we will have this complicated mix of DNA from different sources, and this could be bacteria, fungi, plants. It could be our own DNA or other humans' DNA, and then what we're interested in in this case was then the animals in the zoo. So on this mix we don't have to go in and target and we, what we can do is that we say using PCR analysis we go in and say okay we have these small pieces of DNA that we call PCR primers and they're designed to latch on to only vertebrate DNA because that's what we're interested in. But not only that it's designed to latch to two areas surrounding the DNA marker that we're interested in for the vertebrates, and this is a DNA marker that can be used to tell different species apart. So we went in and then used these PCR primers to amplify, so make more copies and enrich our DNA for just these tiny fragments of DNA that we're interested in. And um, once we've done that and we did a lot of other stuff in the lab, then it was ready to get sequenced. And here we use these new high-throughput sequencing platforms that is able to sequence many, 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 many pieces of DNA simultaneously, so in parallel. And that will then spit out millions of sequences that we then have to sort up computationally to go back to, okay, what little pieces of taxonomically... Um, informative vertebrate markers were in which sample once we have that and we have them assigned to the different samples well then we sit there with lots of different sequences and these are just letters like four different letters in different orders we then have to translate that into something that we can understand so we have to then match them against dna reference databases where there will be, let's say, a separate, will be, a separate reference for that marker will be in there. We can match it there, and then it will give us a hit and say, well, this one is separate.
2: So you have to have a candidate animal in mind and send in a primer for say lion or something like that and watch what happens and if there is a lion specimen in the DNA you get that back and then you try something else for sparrows and something else for pigeons and something else for mice. In other words you have a whole sequence of primers sent in to test for the presence of their particular DNA. Is that the model?
7: So what we're doing is once we have assigned what DNA sequences belong to which samples, what we then do is we run it through a DNA reference database. So we take each one of them or them all in one go, and then we're going to get different hits for the, for the different DNA sequences against uh, what's in the DNA reference database. So we might get very lucky that a sequence then has a 100% hit to something. So it's 100% identical to something in the DNA reference database, and we can assign that to species. So so for, for most of the stuff that we got out of the Sue samples, we could actually assign it to species level. And then comes the like, really, really dreadful moment, right? Because we're working with air and air is something that surrounds everything. So just by us opening up our samples in the lab, And now what we talked about, what we realized was, well, we have these filters that are basically DNA air samples. If we take them out in the lab, well, then suddenly our sample type air from the lab will surround our samples. And we then got very, very worried. Could that potentially contaminate if there is DNA in air from animals? Well, what if there's some animal DNA floating around in the air in the lab? And what if that could contaminate our samples? So we got very worried. So before we started doing the lab work, we actually, we thought, okay, we're gonna just build a new lab for this. So we cleaned out a space and um, we built a new lab and cleaned it out completely and even took samples from the air in this new lab because we just did not know what we're working with. We didn't know the quality, we didn't know the quantity of DNA, and we didn't know whether there would be anything floating around in the air in the lab that could contaminate our samples. So we were very worried about this. Um, But then once we got our... Every like all the species assignments to to our samples back from the zoo samples. Of course, what we were still worried about was okay. So we took all these measures to avoid that we would get contamination into our samples, but was that enough? Or do we get because this PCR approach is super sensitive and that's going to pick up even the faintest traces of something. So we needed to be very sure that we didn't have any contamination in our results. So what we um, what we of course then were worried about was. Are we seeing any species? Are we detecting any species that we cannot account for? And this was a very dreadful moment. And we had some scares during that because we, of course, had the species list of the animals that were found in the zoo. And we, of course, cross-checked with that and most looked good. But then what we also saw was suddenly we got three fish species that we could not account for. So we called the zoological director out from the Copenhagen Zoo and we said to him, okay, can you please... Can you explain or can you look at this? Can you explain why we find these three fish species? And he just said, well, these are fish species. Yeah, they're not in the species list from the zoo, but these are fish that we feed our animals with in the zoo. So on a weekly basis, we're going to process them in the kitchen and then feed them, like carry them around in buckets and feed them to the animals here in the zoo. So we were, we had some scares. We also had a, a the guppy, which is a small fish that maybe you know from, you can have them in aquariums. They were, we detected the guppy in the rainforest house. We could not find it in any species list. And then again calling the zoological director from the zoo, asking him, how can this be? Is it a false positive? Have we Now is our whole data set compromised? But what he then said was, oh yeah, they actually live in the pond inside the rainforest house. So I was there today and I checked and it's completely true hundreds of guppies are swimming around in that pond. So we also, we did detect some stuff where we did not, um, we didn't expect to find this stuff in there, but then we could still, we could find some stuff so they can now put it into their species list.
0: Absolutely fantastic tool. I'm thinking of it for solving crime as well. If you can detect how long the sample has been in the air and you can trace it back to somebody's DNA in a database when a crime or where a crime was committed, then
7: bingo! Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave that to the forensics people, I think. No,
0: but it's, it's a possibility, isn't
7: it? <laughs> I'm happy to lend them my vacuumer. <laughs> well, listen, it's fascinating stuff, Christine. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. It was nice to meet you.
0: And that's pretty much all we have time for today. My thanks to Richard Collins, Aiden Ilana, and Niall Hatch. Don't forget you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. And you can make a date with us next Sunday from 7 pm right here in RT Radio 1. So until then, goodbye.
1: Email mooney at rte.ie.